Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. Good morning, Michael. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. So excited to have you here today. How are you? you? Nice to be here. <laughs> that's, that's good. Thank you for, for your time. And now I'm going to start a little bit of the article that I read that you wrote for Investment Magazine. So the topic is human trust under threat with rise of AI. Um, so you wrote about the issues with AI written news article and deep fake. Uh, I certainly know about some of those too. I actually have used the uh, AI news, sorry, the AI generation uh, for copywriting before. It's bloody amazing. But anyway, talk about, has your opinion changed on the matter since, since then? Yeah, so, thanks, Jason. So that, that's, um, that article was written just pre-COVID mm. and I think it was it was um it was an article really talking about as you said deep fakes and this idea of what is real when you have algorithms that can emulate um information credibly so they can write an article for you it can it can create a piece of uh, media for you etc and if you don't have any certification or if you don't have any way to validate it then you kind of take it uh, take it on board and so this idea that you, the threat here is that you start to mistrust. You don't know what's real. Uh, it's coming at you from the medium. And that automation, as well as emulating these human-like activities, also needs to provide some degree of certainty or certification or truthfulness to them. And, and maybe that's not there. But I think what, what it really made me think about, which I think has only become a bigger, bigger issue, is as our lives move more and more online, this idea of trust or at least understanding what um algorithms are trying to do and why they're trying to do it i i think becomes uh, even more and so whether you're thinking about as an individual so kind of your news feed and you're thinking about is this real or not real whether you're a customer and you're thinking why why was i denied for my credit loan okay mm -hmm. some algorithm put me into a certain position or not uh, we were just talking about junk mail filters it could be as simple as that like what, what is the rule for junk mail filters i don't know maybe yeah. i went in the wrong direction um or or company right companies that are trying to deploy algorithms at scale in order to create efficiencies save costs and they need to know how those algorithms are functioning how they're working what they're doing why they're doing it i think the for my my view is that one of the things that we, we 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 have to factor in is the human element behind the algorithm um that is a bit that we 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 can control but at the same time, do you think we should shift more focus on the human? Because ultimately, it's the human who is creating those algorithms. Ultimately, it's the human equally who is training all of those models. How, how much do you think we should, should also look at the human factor of that as opposed to the algorithm or all of these tools then? So, so I think it's a very good question, and it's one that <clears throat> we struggle a lot with in finance, mm -hmm. in asset management, and, and fields like that. So, 
maybe I can reframe it for a second. One, there's two ideologies here. One ideology says that an algorithm is a manifestation of your expertise or of your will as a coder. So whatever the algorithm is doing at scale with lots of data, you should be able to represent it and talk about it as if you were doing it. So if you yeah. had infinite time and resources, you would be doing the same <clears> thing that the algorithm is doing more or less. And so therefore it's um, explainable. It's a, it's a manifestation of your will and your outcome and it's great. And of course, once you start looking into details, you start thinking, well, what about all the bad things that we do as human beings? What about all the behavioral biases and all the negative things that we carry? Does that mean we also carry these in, in, into that? And aren't we just doing confirmation bias? So for example, if, if we were to use algorithms to solve problems that we don't have a very good idea about how to solve, um, are we just not scaling a bad solution into mm. lots and lots of places all the time? And yeah, it's explainable. Yes, it's human. Yes, it, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a programmer's or an expert's view, but it's fallible. And it, maybe it's not very accurate. And maybe it's not very good. Uh, on the other side, you've got the other ideology that says we can use algorithms to solve problems in ways that humans could not solve them. So we can actually use data. If you think about Go as a strategy, or you think about CNN, or you think about all these weather pattern forecasting, complex systems increasingly with machine learning and with reinforcement learning type models, you're finding solutions to problems in high dimensional space that human beings are not able to process or even understand from a sense of intuition. And so you kind of at this uncomfortable juncture where that form of intelligence it's not just about the speed of calculation. It's not just about the volume of data, but the functional forms and nonlinearity, high dimensionality of the problem means that you and I are not good at solving those kinds of problems, but an algorithm is. And should an algorithm be forced to explain itself to us or to reduce itself in a way that is human and linear and so on, does that mean we remove um, some of the explainability of that algorithm? We kind of reduce it in some sense to, to simple storylines, right? And I think these two ideologies are very interesting because one says for certain class of problems, we want human intuition, human in the loop. We want transparency and we don't mind if we confirm our own bias because we like the, what we're doing and we think we're very good at it. So that's fine. So algorithm is um, replicating our intelligence. It's replicating our intuition. It's just doing it at scale. So the job of a data science team or a business there is to take a great idea that everyone's really happy with not even test it or test it a little bit, but essentially to scale it out. It's intelligent automation, if you think about it. On the other side, you've got this idea that we don't know the solution to, to certain kinds of problems very well. We don't have an intuition or we're very poor in it. Forecasting is a classic example. People are terrible forecasters for lots of reasons. There's a mountain of evidence and behavioral biases behind that. And so therefore, when we look to machine learning algorithms, we like nonlinearity, we like obfuscation, we like uh, higher dimensional weirdnesses, uh, so long as we believe they're not noise or artifacts of, of the data, so long as we believe actually the system is pretty stable, it's just finding patterns that you and I cannot follow for whatever reason, then I feel like for those class of problems, we should embrace the nonlinear complexity and, and see what higher dimensionality can, can buy us. But I think the, the weaknesses of that, the, the machine element of that, of that idea, is our ability to tell whether it's noise, our ability to, to be context-free in that assessment. 
So I'll give you a very quick example and then... Um, yes, then, please. Um, yeah, very jump. But imagine that um, we were creating a model for um, forecasting stock prices, markets, industries, commodity prices, oil prices. Mm. Let's go oil price. And we took history and we threw a machine learning model at it. We found certain kinds of relationships between other commodities, trading patterns, geopolitical risk news, all these wonderful ideas. Um, and the model was, was great. And it was able to detect that uh, news patterns in the you know, UAE and the US were actually the best ways of forecasting uh, commodity prices. And we learned something that we didn't know as, as human beings. In order for us to test whether we just did an amazing job at data fitting, not data fitting in a data science way, but data fitting in an econometric way, which is a bad thing, right? Where you kind of, you, you fit the, the, your hypothesis to the model. Uh, sorry, to, to, so excuse me, you fit your hypothesis to the data. So you kind of come up with a hypothesis that suits the data uh, rather than the other way around, or testing your hypothesis. You, you basically are relying upon one version of history, human history that has brought us to this point which had the Suez crisis, which had a number of events in history where the oil prices moved significantly and you fitted a relationship structure around that. So you can't with confidence say that oil prices in any universe or in any human universe, any human future would be driven by these two things. You can only say with confidence that in this version of the truth, when this version of history, it has been the case. So when you try to apply that going forward, you have this problem that you don't know which future path uh, we're going to take and the dependencies around that matter. So this is one of the classic problems of backtesting or, or any kind of future forecasting is that history is, has limited influence for you because of, of the idea you only have one history. In the same kind of way, um, that's why time series forecasting has, has really not been at the center of a lot of the data science work. It's been primarily around um, uh, for reinforcement, le reinforcement learning has been gained. So controlled environments where you can create every permutation of every action and reaction. You don't have to rely upon a single history. And then I think increasingly um, in the CNN world and in the, um, in the other stuff, it's been about cross-sectional identification. So not time series forecasting, but is this a fox or is this a bear or is this something else? So labeling essentially. Um, which doesn't require you to understand the context of motion or flow or, or change, uh, but just about association. And so I think there's, um, yeah, th this is a, a really good question where there's certain classes of problems that um, we might release the nonlinear nature of machine learning onto and we're confident that it can do it. There's other class of problems where it's not very good and we're not very good either. So mm. we should probably leave those alone, i.e. forecasting time series, that kind of stuff. And then there's another class of problems where we're very confident about our solution. We just want the data science team to replicate the intuition of an expert and scale it out across the organization and create consistency and uh, other types of beneficiary effects across an organization, removing some of the other human noise, actually, that you can have as well. I agree. I think that is also a room for a human plus the machine approach where we are complementing each other um, where our intuitive will come into place at the same time uh, rely on the machine to do all the volume that we human could not possibly do yeah and i think one one thing that has been identified is this area of zero shot or, or no shot learning right which is essentially um the idea that you can have limited inference so you don't need the permutation of every 
action reaction in order to fit a model to it but you can try to take um sort of a transfer learning type methodologies which is essentially um, one area of that and other areas looking at babies and the way they learn and all that kind of stuff so trying to understand um how what humans do well which is that these cognitive shortcuts that we have mm. about learning about systems um and then also throwing it but i i find personally that much of the human in the loop conversation is not about creating better accuracy necessarily because i would argue that anything that you can describe to me verbally i can encode it into a piece of code mm -hmm. and if that's the case then i can replicate anything you can verbally describe to me but this notion of trust this notion of i want a human in the loop because uh, i don't know what the i don't know how sensible the algorithm is i don't know that it won't do something dumb uh, because he doesn't have all these safeguards inbuilt, right? It's just trying to solve one problem. So mm. the Elon Musk example of, you know, we uh, we design an AI that makes batteries and then it kills all humanity and life on Earth in order to make more batteries, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's because it doesn't have any safeguards. It doesn't have any um, sort of greater context yeah. around what it's trying to do. So I find that that conversation sometimes gets muddled in, in that human I don't feel comfortable with the algorithm versus the, I think we can build a better algorithm with people in it. Now, coming back to the, all this paper that you have written over the years, has any research topic in particular stay with you longer than the others? Oh, gee, look, it's, if you're in data science or even if you're kind of curious about it, it's such a fast moving, fascinating field that it's so hard to, to fall in love with something too long before it moves on to the next thing. Um, I, I think from a data science perspective, uh, I probably have um, kind of really enjoyed the, the flow of conversations, how we become better and better from NLP to CNN to, uh, to the reinforcement learning uh, elements of it. I really enjoyed ethical AI and biased AI and the research in there. And what it has brought me now into more is explainable AI. And my personal journey has been to start actually learning a lot more about cognitive systems in humans and the way the cognitive systems function in terms of a sequential series of logical arguments, or even some of the behavioral elements. And it's really kind of brought me to this question of how do we um, create compelling algorithms? So not only algorithms that explain something in a very kind of reasoned, logical way, even that can be a bit challenging, but also how to make those reasoned, logical things much more compelling. So the interchange between humanity and, and AI and that overlap, which are, you already referred to, where, where the two elements are, are living in symbiosis, and that what are the elements that need to be created, the bridges that need to be created from the AI world into humanity or into the human cognitive side. I'm not, let's say, talking about Neuralink or physical implants, although I think that's mm. also <clears throat> going to change the game, but I'm certainly talking about the way that, that the, two sense, the, two, the two parties communicate and reason and uh, compromise and, and essentially how to, how to do that, not in a manipulative way, but in a kind of a positive way, I think. Let's talk a little bit deeper about that uh, shortly, but I just want to, 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 to come back to uh, talk a bit about your background. So I know you just started a new consultancy uh, called Curious Analytic, but before you started this uh, company, what has been your background that brought you to decide to do this and also some of the things that you did in the, in the past? 
Sure. Look, yeah, my my road has not been straight, um, but I think <laughs> a lot of people's roads are, are winding for, for many reasons. So if you're uh, if you're at the beginning of your career and you're listening to it, don't worry if you don't know where you're going. It's uh, even if you did, it doesn't matter. It will change. Um, <laughs> I agree. So, agree. <laughs> so uh, I began life by doing actually psychology and philosophy, and I really enjoyed those kind of human humanistic views of the world. And I um, went through my early 20s and got into finance. And I really enjoyed finance because there was something really uh, clear and, uh, and uh, efficient about finance in terms of allocation of capital, efficient markets, uh, uh, you know, cost effort kind of things. It wasn't idealistic, it was very applied. And so I did a finance degree here in Australia and did an honors degree, so did a bit more research, enjoyed the research, worked at university for a little bit, and then ended up in London doing a PhD at London School of Economics in finance. And so I did my PhD in finance. I went to NYU at the end, and I had some amazing experiences uh, in the US academic world, pitching ideas and, and being part of that whole academic scene. I highly recommend if anybody's thinking about doing a PhD to go through that, to, take those years to, sac to sacrifice those income essentially to go through that because it really changes the way you think you're much more structured and much more kind of systematic i came out of that and um i wanted to become an academic and so applied to lots of universities and again life rolls the dice and you kind of go left rather than right <laughs> and um i ended up in uh at blackrock and so blackrock is a very large global asset manager is the biggest in the world that's some trillion yeah, that's about that one. yeah. And um, amazing place, very, very sophisticated, very quantitative, uh, uh, and just amazing people in it. So I worked at BlackRock, I worked at Fidelity, which is equally another large institutional as a part of a quantitative research team. I then ran my own fund at Renaissance Capital. Sorry, not Renaissance, Renaissance Asset Management, big difference, Renaissance Asset Management. I then uh, joined AXA Investment Managers um, and later became the um, co-head of research there and chief strategist for AI and kind of spent my time running around the world talking about application of AI in forecasting systems and mm -hmm. different kinds of modeling uh, for the financial world, essentially, for various different asset classes and investment problems. In the meantime, I taught at university. I taught at Imperial College, a master's in quantitative finance. I was a chief uh, examiner for London School of Economics. So I kind of kept always a foot in the academic world. I was doing mentoring for fintechs and cybertechs. Um, and then we relocated to Australia about four years ago. Um, and I continued with my job for a while. And then I ended up switching to a local a super fund and helping set up a, sort of the quantitative expertise there for about a year. Um, at that point in time, I decided that I really needed to shift my career path. I, I wanted to get much more involved in the societal impact of, of technology and automation and AI. I think you get to an age in your life where you kind of think, okay, I've run one part of my career and now I'm, I'm interested in exploring other areas. And so for me, that was looking at uh, this. So I joined an AI startup, um, a bit more than a startup by that point. It was about three years in, in Australia called Fathom, which is a great company looking at the impact of automation technologies on the workforce and industries around the world. We worked a lot with governments, with institutions, with uh, large industry bodies around understanding and forecasting the level of um, employment impacts in different regions, uh, whether that's emerging markets, which they, actually the impact is going to be much greater, uh, where the developed markets, we looked at a lot of different kinds of AI and automation technologies. 
And again, that kind of brought me into a really wonderful place where I could, you know, use my quantitative and forecasting skills, but equally have a very social mission in mind in terms of what does it mean to be uh, dislocated from automation uh, impacts. So that company was sold to Pearson. Um, and uh, that was fantastic. That was a very successful wow. position. And uh, that's going to continue to work under the um, kind of future of work type banner that Pearson's going to offer a lot of different things under, which is fantastic, more an education, reskilling, retraining kind of banner. And as for me, I've sort of gone back to my business that I had in the background called Curious and um, sort of looking at a number of different uh, avenues going forward, um, including some in crypto as well, actually. And, uh, you know, the blockchains and all those kind of interesting areas that are just receiving a great deal of talent um, and attention and, and really nice thinkers that are in that space as well. So look, the, 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 again, not, not a direct straight line. I kind of did, did my corporate high-flying gig Traveled the world, did the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, CNBC, etc. Um, got into the AI space, which is fantastic, and I really enjoyed that. And I think one thing you have to kind of do, do frequently in your life is reinvent yourself. And so, when a new thing's coming along, we know quantum computing coming along. We know that cyber technologies are big things as well. And so, always being not afraid to to learn about these and, and open a open a book and, and read a book on it, and just really kind of. Uh, you know, sink into the, some of these topics, I think has is, is really helped me in my career. I think it's so important to reinvent ourselves so that we can continue to keep ourselves relevant. Um, and is I find that is becoming more and more important, especially the world is changing so fast. One, one of the things that I am constantly reminding myself is <clears throat> As much, I, 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 to be honest, I still cannot grasp the idea about NFT. I mean, I can understand what it does and why it is, but I still cannot grasp the concept of paying a couple of thousand dollars for a JPEG or GIF file, right? That, that, is the, that is the thing that I cannot grasp. But at the same time, I got to remind myself that in the 1990s where I was young, I was like, um, Internet is going to change the world. Uh, while at the same time, I, uh, my 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 the older generation like my father would say, "What the hell is internet?" <laughs> so that was like the way that I'm trying to to, to think about NFT uh, for well, now. Look, or... <laughs> it's a it's a fascinating topic. It's not not that I'm an expert. I'm not going to offer you an expert's uh, shadow of a doubt. I don't think anybody is, but. Uh, look, the, the way that I think about this stuff, maybe this helps a bit, is that a lot of this activity is happening underneath the umbrella of moving uh, human physical activity into the digital sphere. So we're kind of trying to recreate our economies and our lifestyles in the digital sphere. And for some of these things, we've been very successful. So the call that we're having today or email communication and, for, and social media and so on. For some of them, we've not been, and money, Money is now completely virtual and tapping and there's very little physical currency, at least in developed markets. I think with um, this idea that one of the, the, the challenges of doing so is that you need to introduce scarcity because in the economy, if anything, they have a value and a price, you need to have a scarcity. Mm. A system that recognizes scarcity. Now, you know, in a world where anything can be reproduced digitally uh, and, and uh, storage space is not significant, in terms of a cost barrier, you can reproduce, um, you know, you, you can make a facsimile copy of your house, a digital house and reproduce it a million times. Whereas in real life, it'd be much harder. 
So I can see the NFT, the idea or the beginnings of an idea of ownership and scarcity trying to be introduced. But the irony here, of course, is that much of the population is striving for this change for Web3 and everything else would like to have a more inclusive and less centralized financial system, payment system, digital economy, which would kind of take you almost away from a capitalist scarce resource. Few people own all of the assets into everybody owns and everybody you know has equal access and opportunity and so on. So you need to kind of make these two things work uh, in parallel. So for me, the NFT is, um, it's a little bit like, remember that again in the 1990s, e-commerce was a really big thing. Everybody was like e-commerce. This, and you had examples of mining companies renaming themselves. They used to be called, I don't know, bronze mining. And then they called themselves e-bronze mining and the share price would shoot up. Yeah. Silly things like that, right? Just by association Correct. of a new technology being discovered. And even then, if you think about it, it wasn't until 20, even 30 years later now, mm. say 20 years later that the world is that technology forms a significant part of the share market, but not 100%, like 15%, 17% of the share market is the technology companies. Mm. And they form a significant part of our lives day to day, but from an economic perspective, they are one cog in the wheel. And I feel like what you're going to find is that um, some of the protocols being developed for exchange and whatever will have great use cases and then we'll have really poor use cases. And the great use cases will develop and create better industries and reinforce industries and maybe decentralize some of those interesting industries as well. But the capitalist economy, the monster, the machine will suck the innovation in, will utilize it to increase share price, to increase shareholder value and whatever capability it has to. And then like the next innovation will be right around the corner. Perhaps, and perhaps the NFT, the underlying concept can be further extended when, when we have that virtual world. Um, I just want to go back when you were talking about the quantitative research when that for the works that you did in the corporate world. Just want to clarify: was it more of the um, researching, uh, looking at the financial data, and then writing the report? Uh, analysis, uh, or is it more of the algorithm trading or high-frequency trading, uh, technical trading? Well, what is the context of that in, in, in this tool? Yeah, this, it's a great question. So um, the asset management industry is also known as the buy side. And so the buy side uh, essentially are composed of um, investment products. Mm. Typically, these are mutual funds. So yep. mutual funds, you can buy a piece of share in and uh, your money is invested. Every mutual fund has a mandate, what, how it should invest the money. So an equity mutual fund will say, I'm going to buy US equities, for example. You know what you're buying. You're buying a portfolio of US equities. Mm. And it's the job of the portfolio manager to choose which equities that you're going to buy. And in doing so, that portfolio manager can reach out for research to pull in to their process. The research is normally provided by to sell side or typically in the past and now maybe more boutique research firms so sell side provides brokerage and research and it goes into the portfolio manager's hands who then makes decisions for what they should buy with quantitative uh, investment strategies there is no well there is a portfolio manager but their role is very different so now rather than having a person who chooses which stocks to buy you have an algorithm that gives you a buy trade list essentially to to buy or to sell and in many cases, that algorithm will go off and trade to rebalance to that trade list as well in the market. So the portfolio manager manages 
um, the efficient trading. If the algorithms are great, and if it's high frequency, there's not much of a role for portfolio manager except risk management. If it's, if it's different, then they might have more role. The research team in a quantitative research place is the job to develop the algorithms and to build the algorithms. So essentially their intuition of the future, the methodologies, the data they use goes into the models and the models are driving what stocks you should buy, when you should buy them, how long you should hold them, et cetera. So I, my career was, um, I started with risk management. So I was at BlackRock, I was a part of a team called RQA, and which is a phenomenal team that looks across many different strategies and to understand the risks that they are running and the commonality across those risks and, and, uh, and make sure that they're consistent. But they're not managing money themselves. They're not involved in stock picking. They're just involved in helping uh, the business manage. So that's a great introduction to understanding all these different animals in the asset management kingdom to seeing what each of them do and why, from hedge funds to debt funds, equity funds, private equity, and so on, fund of funds, et cetera. One, my next role and most of my career from Fidelity onwards was in the development of the algorithms that made the investment decisions. Most of these algorithms would be day-to-day -day trading. They would not be intraday algorithms. They would not be high frequency. And most of these algorithms in my career looked for fundamental data to make those investment decisions. And so there's... Um, uh, I'll quickly drop a, a line here. So um, I had this nice project I did called the Curious Quant. It's a 20-part uh, podcast series. And basically in it, I just talked to a bunch of quants like myself who do these yeah. different kinds of strategies. And you, you can see the range. The range goes from you know, high-frequency, data-led, you know, intraday, mm -hmm. microsecond transactions, all the way to the other end, which is uh, much more asset allocations and much more strategic, slow long-term forecast where's the u.s economy going to be in 10 years and so on so so the range of forecasting problems varies and then the portfolio construction risk management everything else that goes on top of that in order to create the product that is a mutual fund that is then kind of delivered to to the client so from someone like you who has got a quant background and who has been playing with data and analytic for the last what, 20 or 30 years how old am I, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> now, 20 or 30 years not necessarily applied to you. Maybe but in my mind, yeah. For, for, for the industry itself. Um, and that quant application is similarly done in the world of the insurance and the bank. And it was never known as data science or it was never known as AI. Do you think with the new terminology like data science and AI being introduced over the last 10 years has accelerated the adoption of all these works that the industry has been doing over the last 20 or 30 years at a much faster pace and also attract more attention. So it's, it's a great question and that's a long answer to it. I'm going to try and summarize everything. Mind about it. Um, <laughs> or maybe if we take a step back, the way that I see it is that the, all this quant work, you know, all the actual works to some extent is no different to data science or AI. Perhaps the newer technique because of the technology and the computing capacity allow us to do some of the things that obviously we couldn't do 20 or 30 years ago. But in a, at a high level, I see them the same. But 
I, 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 I equally think that because of the new newer technology being introduced and that has accelerated the pace of this adoption or at least the attention. So, so okay. So yeah. I, I, it's it's let me let me try and tackle this. So quant as a field of applied uh, finance or data science, if you want, has incredible roots in academia. Mm. in very high pedigree academia. So the Yales, the Harvards, the Chicago's are filled with people who run data forecast quantitative models and all of the major quant funds that were developed on the back of this academic work in the late 1990s came to the private sector with a view from the physics background, from chaos theory, from all these wonderfully highly technical um, areas of academia that they could forecast the markets. So that was really their primary objective. So we can forecast the market to make money. Mm. And so the use case was very clear, a very specific use case. And the flood of talent that flowed into the markets from that very specific use case created hedge funds, created all these different financial products, including the index product, which was originally developed by BGI, actually, probably before BGI, but BGI was probably one of the major proponents of that. And so there were these titans of industry that came from really smart professors who moved into to the private sector. So that shaped the kinds of problems that were being tackled by this industry. When it actually wasn't the methodology, it was the advent of Amazon and it was the advent of Google and the success of these major technology companies that used data at scale and were able to create just incredible um, business outcomes, scalable business outcomes that put first the financial markets alert that there's more here than what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. what we're doing. And data science, I remember being at a conference in London with a room full of quants, like imagine 200 quants. And I was on a panel with four others. And we're talking about at the time it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a Macquarie head of research. It was um, BMP head of research, all quants and myself. And we're talking about the application of data science uh, and machine learning models in finance. And we're looking at each other going, it's not going to work because there's limited data. It, the things are moving too fast. Forecasting is very poor. Noise is too much. It's not the right methodology for these kinds of problems. And we all agreed. And the room agreed. And once we left the conference, we all kind of looked at each other over beer at a local pub and went, but isn't this how the, the dinosaurs would have thought about the humans? Like these people are <laughs> small, they're insignificant. <laughs> and, and it's interesting to see the next conference was not about if you should use AI or big data as it was known back then, but, um, and by the way, AI is never AI. AI is a holding term for all things related to data science. Um, it's, it's, um, it became how to, and so what happened in financial services is that the adoption of data science methodologies into the investment process was driven by competitive pressures. You needed to show something different. You needed to show innovation. You needed to show change. So you adopted it, even though you weren't sure if it worked or not for you, you weren't really sure if it was going to change your life or not. On the other hand, the other parts of the banks, insurance companies, and so on, went, look, we've got these massive operational teams, customer service, customer support. Um, claims, uh, handling, uh, financial transactions. A lot of our cost base lives in these less intelligent functions. They're not analytical. They're not forecasting. They're not doing any of those things. They're just repeating the same task again. Mm. Maybe we can use data science for what I would term as intelligent automation. 
And so like any other industry, these industries, financial services went, let's go and create a data science team to automate things. And still to this day, I can tell you that a lot of the data science deployed in financial services are not about forecasting or getting a better solution to a problem, but they're rather about automating and creating cost efficiencies for the middle and back office of these operational settings. So I think what one should be careful is that data science always has a lot of hype from the likes of Google who use it in amazing ways to create new things that have never been created before. I think in a lot of other industries, it's not well understood. The value is, is not well described, but where the value is well described is through this idea of let's go and automate a bunch of things that we do repeatedly. And so I, I feel like the, the, the third thing, which was, was a pure product of data science culture and community was one of sharing. What was very unique about this movement called data science is that people were sharing their code. They were, they were making it open source. They were giving it away. Quantly mm -hmm. never did that. You went to the conference, you took notes, <laughs> you showed nobody because you were competing. It was the same marketplace, right? You were trying to make alpha. You were trying to outcompete the other people. But when data science conferences, they were like, yeah, here's my code, GitHub, live, you know, library, bang, boom. Anybody can have it. You can improve it. So the, the progression, the innovation was much faster. Then you had, you know, the cloud systems becoming open. So anybody with $5 in their pocket could get a supercomputer hired for a half a day. And suddenly access was opened, sharing was opened. And, and the whole culture of this meant that innovation progress and, and learning and community-based education was, 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 you know, rampant. And because of that, you had a much more, um, let's call it much more supply of the, I would call the second tier data scientist. So the first tier being like, I went to university, I did computer science, I'm a data scientist. And the second hobby data scientist are those ones that said, I learned it. I picked up some uh, websites, I learned some Python, I can run some APIs, great. So suddenly you had a lot more supply of these people as well. And, mm. and they, were, could, they could make a lot more difference. So again, it's, it's a great question because in some ways data science came on the footsteps of quant, but in many ways, the, the culture of, of the organization, quant being secretive and academic more and data science being helpful and much more in the software space and the user knows everything and it's the user preferences and it's the product research and it's all that kind of stuff means that it's much more ready to uh, move into different elements of the business. Where I also remember that Quan was incredible, difficult to get in. You, not only you need at least a PhD, but some guys even had two PhD just to get a Quan job. Um, whereas data science was entirely different story. It's more of a software perspective and you got a degree or maybe as you say, um, as long as you assess the internet, learn to write some of those code, then is incredible accessible. Um, now, bringing those two subjects together, how do you think the AI adoption or the data science adoption is progressing specifically um, in the investment fund management or the super innovation? So, I'll say some controversial because I'm allowed to, because why not? Um, <laughs> Go for it. Uh, not well, I think. But then you kind of expect that response from someone like me, but not well. Um, so this industry has been broken by, not broken by, but increasingly put under pressure by lower fees. So there's a great incentive to automate 
to restructure your business. Um, at the same time, the roots and foundations of asset management is still something extremely human. It's the, it's the basic idea that I have money and I'm going to hand the money to you, Jason, and you're going to manage it for me. And that feeling of trust and the emotion of trust that I put into you is based upon the idea that it's very hard to forecast the future and the service you're providing me by investing my money is highly uncertain. So because the service you're providing me is highly uncertain, I need to trust you as a human being. I need to have that emotion that I trust you. And so therefore, if, could I have the same feeling, feeling and emotion if I was to give this to an algorithm? So short, surely if the algorithm is always winning, it's easy, right? It's, it's not hard to trust your uh, phone, your iPhone, your Google, whatever, because every time you talk to it, it talks back, it understands you. So it's functional, it's doing what you say. How, do you, how would you trust something if it only worked 50% of the time? Mm. So I think it's, it's, a very, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting problem where in, in the space of asset management, which is forecasting the future, will often continue to have the human element of it. So if you turn on CNBC or Bloomberg or any of these things today, you will see people, people talking to people, people analyzing, conversing. You will rarely ever see a quant or a data scientist or anybody else going, yeah, look, we've got this model and the model is telling us this and the model is really good at this. And look at the model. It's a really interesting model. You don't have that conversation. You have the conversation with People, you know, throwing their hands around, their earnings are terrible, their earnings are bad. It feels like you're sitting on a campfire, roasting marshmallows, you know, having, having a great time. And so it's a very human activity. And so you kind of go, look, at the heart of this industry lives a very human uh, relationship with each other, like, um, and a very human trust. And to some degree, a bit of hero worshipping, right? Mm -hmm. Fund managers and idealisms and all that kind of stuff. Um, on the periphery, sits um all the things that you want to just give away like um uh, operational middle back office kind of elements the only way that we can move this industry into more adoption is if we are more efficient at combining the front end of the business which is the charismatic smiling person who tells you that you should trust them and the backer end of the business which has to be a lot more systematic structured data-led decision making the problem is at the moment We've got that charismatic person thinking they can also make very structured, systematic investment decisions. And um, I would say that that's yet to be proven <laughs> in any kind of meaningful way. Would you say that's the core reason why Rubble Advisor is not taking off entirely? Um, so advisory business is a very interesting one. So there's a number of research uh, pieces that have been done on this. So Sorry, just, just to clarify, I was referring to the robo-advisor, if I get the terminology. Oh, robo-advisor, yes, yes, yes. Oh, robo, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. No, 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 exactly right. So I think you said rebel advisor. I would like that. I like that. <laughs> just, just, advice. Thanks. I want the rebel advisor um, <laughs> in my life. I don't want the robo-advice. Yeah, so you're right. Um, very early on, robo-advice in the early 2010s came along and said, look, we can allocate your portfolio more efficiently for you, right? Most allocations are 60-40, 60% 40, 60% equity, 40% fixed income. We can just do that for you. And when you speak to these companies, especially early on, and you said, how, how are you forecasting 
the returns to equities and bonds and all these things in order to make that assessment that 60 40 is the efficient number and look at you and say i do we, we don't think it's a forecasting problem we think it's a risk preference problem we have high risk medium risk, low risk and then this is some numbers next to that and so you're like okay so you're completely forgetting about forecasting the future you're completely forgetting about the horizon of those forecasts being really important and so on which so it's it's not at its core useful in a, in a in a in in the content so you're not getting a more informed piece of advice than you would be from a back of envelope however the value proposition i think for those companies was the features the ease of use the ux the ui so in typical saas format this is a software format they went well the core problem is people can sort that out but we're just going to give them a better experience and therefore they're going to come to us because otherwise they have to go to an advisor they have to talk to them and etc cetera, etc cetera. and as you say a lot of there was a lot of hype around good rubber advice but in the end it didn't take off because for the most part people wanted a delegated decision making here they didn't want to sit there and play with the allocation of money. They wanted an expert, delegated expert to do that for them. And in order to do that, you needed to have trust mm. and, and you need to feel like an emotional trust. So the fascinating thing, and this is for full disclosure, I'm the non-exec director of a company called Climb, which um, owns a company called Madison, who does financial advisory. So we've done a bit of work on investigating the drivers for people to derive value from a financial advice. So if you're an engineer, engineer you would say it's for my money it's just to invest my money just do it more efficiently and i derive value fine but when you look at the data and statistics people derive value from financial advice from feeling like they're in control or feeling like their money is going well especially mm. money is such an emotional topic we all have feelings about money we either feel anxious because we don't have enough or we feel feel um, confident or we feel it, it, it's a way to measure us in the social sphere there's lots of different money is not a a objective uh, idea even though mathematically it's a number it has a lot of emotions bundled around it so when you have someone talking to you about your childhood memories of your mom or when you have someone talking to you about your money equally there's a lot of um, emotional elements and so a lot of the financial advisors will tell you that they half the time they're acting like psychologists when they're talking to clients Mm. So the challenge of, of, of a software company or a data company is how do I invoke all these emotions in people while making them feel like, you know, they're in control and it's a good thing and whatever, and still do it scalably. And so far, I think that way of doing things, this kind of nudge marketing has, has not been successful. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I'm, I'm curious to know, though, what, what do you think are the other main reason for the lack of adoption of data science uh, or AI in the investment fund management or, or super innovation? So, I, I mean, one of the bigger reasons I think is the lack of a dollar. There's, there's two reasons, right? Well, one is mundane and one is interesting in my mind anyway. The, the more mundane reason is uh, data and systems. So everybody's struggling with complexity in data and systems. Uh, many companies have built data lakes. Many companies are trying to adopt and supply uh, dashboards, analytics of the business through those data lakes. And some businesses are still struggling uh, in doing that correctly, efficiently. Data, don't forget in the financial services, heavily regulated industry has to be correct, has to be right, has to be double checked. These banks and these uh, organizations often have a myriad of different systems that don't talk to each other, that efficiently um, push data around. 
So before they can even get to modeling or forecasting, they need to have that sorted. And so that's often a barrier. I think the number two thing, which is a more subtle, but more interesting part is this idea of how you make decisions. So most organizations, uh, including many, I'm sure your listeners, will sit down in a meeting, will review the past meeting notes, will uh, come up with a few facts or a few observations, and they'll make a decision that um, they think they should go one way or the other. If you ask them, did you make that decision based on weight of probability, they would say, well, nothing as formal as that. And you say, well, how did you make decisions? Well, it's, it's what the boss said. It's, it's what we did last time. It, it felt like the right thing to do. And they'll really struggle to put their finger on the reasons or the drivers of a certain decision. Or they'll get, become fixated on a single decision. Oh, but this happened last week and I just don't want it to happen again. So we anchor ourselves and we, we, we put ourselves into separate things. Now, along comes data science, along comes AI and goes, look, we've looked at 10 years of cases. We looked at all this data and we figured out what the optimal way for you to make decisions based on these 200 different variables. And a user, typically uh, a, a asset manager or a banker or whatever, will look at that and say, well, but how do you know it's going to be right this time? Because for them, what they're trying to do is not work out the system and all the things that could drive the decision. They're trying to work out the exception. They're looking for the change or they're looking for the, the difference in what they would normally think of. So oftentimes you have just a uh, sort of almost like an existentialism. It's a philosophically different approach. Uh, a typical portfolio manager, for example, will look for something different about the company. They look for something that's unknown. They look for like almost like a gold digger. They'll be out there scrunching, looking for pieces of gold, you know, shifting around the water, etc. Because they feel like if they can find their something, they can buy their stock and then everybody else realizes that something and the price shoots up and they make money. Whereas a quant or a data scientist will go, right, the drivers of stock price are A, B, C, and D. And we think these set of stocks are good based upon these four factors. But the drivers of those are all public pieces of information. So what the data science team is promising is that they can use publicly available information in more intelligent ways to make better decisions. Whereas what a data, what a, um, a professional will say in asset management is, how do I find out a piece of information that nobody knows? And then I just use it. So they care less about how they use the data or kind of in a systematic structure in whatever way. And they care more about finding unique data. That's part of the reason why alternative data has become very uh, popular, probably even more so than AI. So alternative data is a branch of data that's coming into or has come into asset management. So traditional data is financial data like earnings, revenues, stock prices. Alternative data is, I don't know, flight frequencies and uh, how many you know boats and ships are moving between ports and so on. So that's become a lot more popular than the, the AI side because it's easier to show that you can derive value from it because, hey, you know something nobody else does. So I think that the data science, in order for it to be adopted greater in these worlds, you have to really show that the way to use information means that you can uh, pick up a lot more alpha and returns than just knowing more stuff than the person next to you. The access to the data and also organization of the data is, is always a problematic in a lot of places whether you are small, mid-size, or even to some extent is the same problem that the enterprise are facing. I think there are two problems with it. Number one is um, people are making it way too complicated 
um, by following the framework to rigid. I really have to use this methodology, that methodology to be able to build the data at warehouse, etc. But then they forgot about the, the end user who use it have to join another 200 table just to get the data. I'm curious to know, however, is that especially for the mid-size of the self-managed, uh, sorry, the inf investment fund or spurnovation, they are going to struggle and face this problem anyway. Maybe that would they be interested to subscribe to a service who literally just provide all this data to them and they can still have their, their, their portfolio manager or investment manager to do all the construction of the portfolio. But at least they don't have to worry about the data and that data could consist of all the financial data that is in the market that data could also consist of the alternative data. What that data doesn't have is the customer data that each of those company would have, but they can combine them internally anyway. Do you think that is, is that already been done? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, the financial service industry is pretty expert users of, of the data sets as it pertains to traditional data sets. So you have um, the, the likes of, and there's many more companies than I can mention here. So you'll have FactSet, you'll have Bloomberg, you'll have, um, to some degree, Aladdin, you'll have Charles River, you'll have a bunch of other analytics companies who will take some combination of your portfolio data, which is just yours, and publicly available data like prices and whatever, and give you one uh, interface to, uh, to, to look at that. So you can have a look at your portfolio, your, your, your exposures in your portfolio, your risks, the fundamental data, maybe you can do some fundamental research as well. Um, alternative data and S&P Capital as well and, and, and others. Um, and there's, yeah, market S&P Capital, I can just go on. But it, the, the idea is that each of these uh, vendors is now competing to acquire mm. more data sets to be able to provide just more insights to their clients. Because they're SaaS software data companies, what they do very well is give you access to companies and they hoover up all these alternative data sets and they say, here you are. What they don't really do very well at this point is to show you why you should care. So if, if I showed you the, um, the air traffic airline data, what does it actually help me forecast? And what, why, you know? Um, so they have to be very careful not to give you financial advice. So they can't give you forecasting models. And so therefore what they can do is to make data available to you and provide white papers that showcase potential use cases for that data, but without actually being too prescriptive. And that's a, a big challenge for these kind of companies. I think that um, the other weakness of, of not just the asset management, but, but insurance and banks and so on is a little bit like the philosophy that you just outlined, which is, do you do this in bite size or do you do this in aggregate form? If you do an aggregate, you give it to a centralized team whose job it is, is to create the data lake for everybody. And that's very hard to do because everybody has their own needs, desires, technical capabilities, and so on. And so it's often an impossible task that runs into tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in budget, runs over time, takes too long, is too complicated at the end of it. On the other hand, you can have bite-sized or fragmented data sets and data structures and teams who are using their own data sets to create a business and either live or die based upon that. So it's mm. organizations uh, that do that. 
Um, it's harder to govern from a central perspective, harder to manage, but it means that you can uh, experiment much quicker. You can bring in a data set, you can look at it, explore it, apply it, not apply it, move on, move on, move on. And there's some, probably some combination of two things that you feel good about. Like, you know, some, some of my items could be done to data lake and a lot of the other items I need to experiment with. But unless you're ready to experiment with the data, especially with alternative data, you're going to be far, far behind the rest of the pack. And so I think what, what at the moment is a big barrier to the bigger organizations being more nimble is that they need to integrate these big data sets and find out why they should pay all the money for them quicker. And then they need to pull them into these big data structures. When in fact, I think most of the time, what they really want to do is just uh, get a data set, run it through a system, have a look at it, get a sense of it, have a conversation. Is this worth 50,000? Is this worth 100,000 to us? Is this worth $200,000 for us? Yes, no, maybe, what can we do with it? What can we not do with it? Okay, let's buy it. If we buy it, can we start using it next week? Not, okay, now there's an integration process. Now there's an acquisition process. Now there's a whatever, in nine, in 18 months, we'll have it up and running maybe for you because we have a long queue of things we need to develop. Exactly. Now, earlier we spoke about the human trust when it comes to AI. And I think this is probably where the explainable AI coming into the picture. My question for you is how does explainable AI play a part in the investment fund management industry or super innovation industry? So, so explainable AI is not yet a concept that's really well developed. So there's quantitative funds whose job it is, is to explain their models. And some of them do a good job, some of them don't do a very good job. And in fact, it's very hard to find the skill set of quant that is good at explaining things. Because, because by, by, by definition, your job is to be technically really capable. And in, in some ways, you need to then pull yourself away from that and, and go back to that conversation with your grandma to say, how do you describe to your grandma at the dinner table what you do? And if you can manage that, then, then you can explain the AI is yours, right? It's great. You've done it. And so I find that that's really one of the big challenges that, that this industry doesn't do very well at. Um, and the other side, of course, is that um, you can also reduce and explain something that is highly complex and difficult into a couple of ideas and actually give a sense of explainability to somebody but in fact, actually do them a disservice because now they believe that it's just about those two things and it's not, it's about 40 things. And so you've made them feel good, but actually they haven't really understood anything. All you've done is just make them feel good. And so I think it's, with, with the asset management and, and systems, people are very smart in this industry. They have often very good degrees, very high uh, academic power, very complex thinkers um, and all sides. And so I feel like, most people are able to understand that the markets are complex, forecasting is difficult, and their financial data uh, is cumbersome and so on. But I feel like we in financial services, um, maybe with the exception of banks and insurance companies who have to deal with individuals and, and price insurance contracts or uh, financial contracts based on individual characteristics, in asset management, you, all, you face up against the market not people. So a lot of the models that are about explainable AI are really focused about why you make decisions about people. Why does a person get a loan? Why does a person get access to a scholarship? Why should a person be on criminal record watch? And so they need to be explained because of the social weight, there's a social um, consequence to your decisions that you've made, especially if it's a denial of service or denial of activity. 
with financial services or with asset management, you're making decisions about the market and investing. And your outcome of that decision is immediately in your returns, in your PL. So it's one of the rare cases where you can create a model, put it into practice, and you immediately get a feedback of whether you're right or wrong, immediately. Mm. Whereas many other cases, you, put, you create a model, you put it into service, and it's doing stuff. Like some people got loans, some people didn't get loans. Um, I don't know, we'll, we'll see kind of over some period of time whether they repay their loans and how they repay. And so the idea, the attribution, the, the, the feedback isn't as immediate. So I would say the explainability is has a social weight and social consequence for individual forecasts, which is insurance banking to some extent. I think for asset management, explainability is proxied for by the market that tells you whether you've got your returns or not. Would you say that is the biggest challenge or what would, if not, what would be other biggest challenge then in implementing this explainable AI into the assets management? I think the, 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 the problem is, okay, so, so the, the implementation of explainable AI is like any industry, I think, in the sense that you have to have people who have a very systematic reductionist way of thinking about the world to understand. In a statistical system, you are reasoning through deduction. You're saying, I have data. I am going to reduce the dimensions of that data. I'm going to find a number of different factors and I'm going to use those to explain the data. And that type of reductionism views a certain engineering mindset, Lego builders, engineers, etc. very easy. Then you have other people who reason through induction, example cases. I have my uh, brother, Joey, my brother, Joey dropped a hammer on his foot. I'm never going to buy a hammer because Joey, how do I reason with that person from a deductionist that I, I can show that 99% of people didn't drop the hammer, but Joey did. And so this idea of the, your reasoning system of, of what context, how, how do you come to decisions under uncertainty when there is a, when there's a risk of an outcome? when there's a financial risk or a social risk and so on. And whether you come to that decision in a rational way or not. So, so, so gamblers, the professional gamblers make decisions based on greater probability, they have a structure, they have a system. Everybody else doesn't. Uh, we make decisions based on you know, charms or luckiness or, or how you're feeling or whether you won last week or whatever. So we take bets on certainty based on all these different characteristics. So I feel like this industry has become a lot more institutionalized in the last 20, 30 years, which means that people have become much more structured in their thinking. Whereas 30 years ago, the people in the industry were much more uh, professional gamblers, essentially, seeing, I like, think about Wall Street and those kinds of things. They become a lot more engineering reductionist. So I feel like the, the foundations are there. I feel like there's still a generation of people from a scientific background who will come into this industry. Um, but I, I often find it incredible that for an industry that's so high powered in terms of the academic requirements to get in, the practice of the business is still so unscientific. So, so if you ask people, why did you make the decision to buy this security? They'll give you two reasons, three reasons. Then you go to the next security, they'll give you two different reasons. You go to the next, they're going to give you two, two, three different reasons. Then you ask them, why didn't you buy this other security that you could have bought? Because it's a relative return game. And they'll say, I didn't think of that. 
And so even structures like that going, what is your system? What is your structure of those factors that you choose from, of how you balance them, how you offset them against other things, the things that you didn't do. The reasoning systems are absent in many cases. And there's a sense of, I'll, I'll just give it a shot. Let's just see what happens. Oh, I didn't work out. And then on the other hand, you've got provable examples of people uh, where they've been wrong. And so the stock has gone down, for example, and they're holding it and they're like, I don't want to sell it because then I realize my losses. But you've mm. realized your losses, it's already down. Like, and so then you start to see everything from technical analysis, which is commonly used in crypto and in, in stock markets as well. And there is no statistical foundations for statistical analysis. You've never seen it proved systematically. I, I mean, I've tested like dozens and dozens over the years, right? It's, it's unprovable. And, and yet it's a very frequent thing. And there's a, there's a mountain of biases about looking at a graphic and going, it's a bit high, it's a bit low. Oh, I think it's going to go up, it's going to go down, et cetera. And so it's, it's sort of a, um, it's a, still a very unscientific area. And I feel like in order for it to uh, improve and, and embrace things like AI and ultimately explainable AI, it needs to have a desire to be more systematic and be more structured. Um, rather than a bit more kind of, um, you know, um, let's say, uh, on the fly. I think that is probably where the human element coming into play, um, that ability to understand human and also expect humans to behave in certain way is something that seems to me is never possible after living in the world for the last 40 years. <laughs> I, I suspect that is going to change. And, and, and at the same time, to put that in the context of analogy or, or data is, it just simply cannot quantify the human action. It's, the look, there's two different things here. One is, I mean, social media has shown us that we are very influenceable. The data can be used to quantify and forecast our desires and our preferences that we can. And these are not very intelligent algorithms, by the way, this will be considered as a first generation social media algorithms because they essentially just reflect more of the same. If you looked for videos about kickboxing, you'll see more videos of kickboxing. Fine. Mm. Um, it won't measure what time of the day you or what time of the week or whether you actually did it. I guess same with Amazon. If you bought some nappies, It'll show you nappies now forever and you're like okay, okay i bought my nappies already and so i think it's these are just the first things but this idea that most of us are actually quite similar when it comes to being triggered in certain emotional responses yep tells me that uh, over time algorithms with more data with more processing power with quantum computing etc will be able to much more clearly evoke emotions in humans and the way that they'll invoke emotions may not be in a very linear way, maybe with music, with sounds, with AR, VR, with various other types of learned behaviors. And over time, I think invariably, because we are not evolving genetically, but the algorithms are, there is a sequence of stimuli, keystrokes, et cetera, um, that will unlock us. If you ever read the book, Snow Crash, it's a wonderful early sci-fi book, cyberpunky early uh, stuff. And in it basically says that language is but a code of the brain. And if you can hack language, uh, you can hack the brain essentially. And um, so there's this kind of storyline around that, but there's, there's a lot of truth in, in the sense 
is that the brain and our responses are absolutely hackable. Data and systems will get better and better at finding triggers and being more contextual and more uh, specific around that. That doesn't mean that we can solve problems better. So that doesn't mean that we have a better asset management industry, but it does mean that we'll have an incredible marketing machine that will make us really like that asset management mach uh, you know, machine, even if it does not doing good things. So my hope is that we actually get better at asset management and that's the reason why it's become successful. But I think as an industry, and this is now really pushing the boat out, I don't think we've got much, much better at asset management over the last decade or two. I think what we have got really much, much better at is distribution, marketing, scale, the use of scale. So it's an industry that has moved to, to scale uh, usage more than it's uh, become an expert. Can you explain a little bit or elaborate a little bit further about the scale? I think I can understand about the distribution. Um, Romihood, the, the company uh, in the US, I think is a classic example of like how they do the distribution well, where you just get more people to be able to be part of that investment, and whether it's right or wrong, there's a story for a different day. But what do you mean by, by scale? Um, so, um, the question is about scale. Mm. And the answer is, if you look at the top asset managers in terms of the concentration, Vanguard, BlackRock, et cetera, what they've been able to do is to create incredibly complex multi-tiered businesses that are able to house a huge amounts of different types of investment strategies for clients and manage these effectively and at low fees. So they've been able to compete on fees straight down, have operational excellence, risk management excellence, and as a result, an industry that has a homogeneous product will end up competing on scale. So either you evolve your product and you create incredible value in that evolution and that's how you compete against your um, uh, competitors, or you uh, basically say, you know what, we can't really create a better product or meaningfully different, uh, better product. So we can't do a 10X. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go to scale and we're gonna push uh, down to price. And that's what you've got. You've got a U-shape type uh, development in asset management. You've got the mega guys, you've got the tiny guys, et cetera. Right. That, that is the economy of scale. Now, to wrap this up, can I give us some case study where AI has been critical to success in the asset management sector? It's a case study involving AI and financial services. So I think there's a number of different areas um, I mean, the ones that have been well-documented are probably things like fraud detection from banks or, or indeed insurance companies, um, things like, um, yeah, basically money transfers and patterns and movements of money and those kinds of things. I think in asset management, I would say that there's been a number of uh, really interesting applications of, of alternative data in the world of carbon and ESG investing. So the big story for a while in asset management has been to move to a decarbonized portfolio and how do people move to the end. To do this, you have to find companies and investment opportunities with low carbon. To do this, you have to have better data. Um, the other area I think that's been really interesting and, and you've seen some movement here is been around the application of uh, natural language processing specifically to news items. So in financial markets, um, it's all about the future. Everyone's constantly thinking about what's next, what's next. 
And so the funnel is huge in terms of what's happening. You get information about corporate earnings, you get information about political uh, tensions in China, you get um, you know information about anything, any topic that you'd ever want constantly. And so often uh, this industry is overwhelmed with data and understanding how to uh, summarize or, or even understand that is very important. So people have been looking at um, natural language processing applications for the past decade, I would say. We were starting with very simple kind of bag of words, words to vec kind of applications where they're looking for sentiment or keyword searches. So for example, there'll be algorithms out there looking for disaster keyword searches. And every time they, they detect a news article talking about a disaster that's located, for example, in a refinery, they will go and buy oil because it knows that if the refinery has a problem, then oil supply is restricted, so oil price will go up. And so there's all these kinds of circumstances, situational type algorithms. And indeed, the, probably the ones that are even more powerful are the ones that are trying to process millions and millions and millions of articles a day and trying to use, uh, and, and just to go back to the previous point, trying to use human intuition as a way of replicating human intuition to summarize and condense the NLP. So today, for example, um, you'll have multiple uh, vendors that will sell you either in raw or in process form the results of processing millions of articles a day around sentiment, individual company sentiment, uh, corporate earnings, political, um, geopolitical risks, all the way to private sector commodities and so on. So I think the, the, um, the challenge again is the fact that NLP or from a software perspective, they will do really well at condensing this information. I think there's a, a different kind of challenge which talks about how to place the trading bets. And then I think I think the final one I'd mention is that you, obviously high frequency trading was a big topic uh, a number of years ago. They've gone all very quiet. So high frequency trading uh, operates under the surface. They don't really advertise what they're doing and how they're doing it. So it's hard to know if they're doing well or so on. But I feel like that's kind of an area where a lot of technology and a lot of the, especially reinforcement learning algorithms will have a lot to say including trading. So when you think about market making, you're trying to understand how you should price certain securities and you're playing a bit of a mini game of liquidity discovery, then systems like reinforcement learning uh, certainly were very popular a number of years ago to, to, to see if, if that can be done that way. So again, a, a typical hedge fund will use any combination of all those things to derive some value for their clients from market making intelligently all the way to being first respondent to news in a high frequency kind of way using natural language processing to understand the topic and the prevalence of that topic uh, in terms of driving prices and outcomes and so on. So any number of those applications. Thanks for that. Now to uh, close off this podcast interview, these are my final two questions that is not related to, to the AI or data and analytics. The first one is, if you were starting out your career today, what area would you focus on and why? Um, so so there's, there's no doubt that today, software engineering, machine learning, people have a wonderful advantage in, in the future. Anybody that can speak to analytics and device things uh, is in a really good position. Even if no, no code or low code systems take off, I think they'll still be in a good position going forward. To, to me, um, this is a little bit, again, controversial, but we like controversy. It's um, it, the weaponization of AI is the next big frontier. So we've had the first tier, which 
it's almost like this organic growth of a community of people sharing code and creating problems, solving it, et cetera. Some of these problems are really good for strategy creation, deployment, development. Some of them are really good for drone control and robotics control, autonomous weapons, and so on. There's been a lot of conversations about autonomous weapons, what, how you define them, how you think about them, where the country should do them or not. Um, whatever your position that on that may be from an ethical perspective, I think the bottom line is that many of these systems outperform the current human systems. And so therefore, from a, um, I suppose, a dominance, uh, you know, kind of nations kind of perspective, if you do not adopt a system that can outperform yours, your, your competitor, your, your nation does, you will be outcompeted. And that may not be about a full-scale war, that can be lots of different cybersecurity, for example, and so on. And so I think cybersecurity and the weaponization of AI and information and data is, is a huge area that will uh, see a lot more attention. Um, so that's probably the safe play, but slightly more somber play. I think the other play for me is uh, is VR and AR. So, so virtual reality is, is fascinating what it can do. I think it will um, become, you know, ready player one like, um, if, if not slightly more adult. And I can see the development of those devices, really the version ones what we have today, but version three, four, fives being just super realistic and, and super enjoyable. I think the VR thing, sorry, not the VR, the AR, the augmented reality, I can see how it could work really well, especially blending in that whole digital world in the physical world. Uh, I'm really looking forward to see that one. My final question is something you would tell yourself at your 20? Jeez, what would I tell myself if I was 20? Um go write your name what was that what was that saying from red hot chili peppers go write your message in the pavement <laughs> what does that mean well if, i don't know if you ever had this thing where if you ever lived in a, a neighborhood where they were laying concrete yes and the concrete was soft and so people would write their name in or something like this yes and so this is idea that when you're in your 20s your job, I, I, I think, is to go as far as you possibly can. So to challenge yourself to go as far as possibly can. So you really have to realize what are the edges of your capabilities. And in this particular case, if you're 20 or 25 and you're listening to this and you're thinking about, I'm in a job or I'm a circumstance where I'm kind of okay, I'm a bit comfortable, I'm not sure I've really gone, then you're not really doing your job. What you you need to do is to do something at the highest possible level that you can find. You need to seek mastery. And to do that, you need to find people that are masters of that thing, craft or company perhaps. And you need to get into those circles. That might mean changing continents and countries. That might mean um, doing lots of crazy things to be living, you know, sleeping on sofas and whatever else. But it's really a wonderful time to push yourself to the edge of your capabilities. Uh, to know what those, uh, what the edge is and how far you can go. I think that that will um, serve you really well later on. And, and maybe that's not very far. Maybe it's kind of reasonably far. Maybe it's very far, but it's, it's really is the years to do that because then I think as you get older, more and more people look to you to help them or to guide them. And in order for you to be useful in that circumstance, you need to have experienced and you need to have pushed, you need to have seen um so 
yeah, go write your message in the pavement. I so agree, especially also in the younger years, you don't have so much of the commitment uh, in various forms, like whether it's a financial commitment, family commitment, etc., etc. Uh, it's really the time to push the boundaries. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and be a little bit um, be a little bit reckless. So again, this idea that if you aim for the stars, you land on the moon. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if you're interested in data science, for example, um, I, today, write down the top five academics that you really like, or the top 10, or write down the top 10 Twitter people that you like, or just build me a list and then find out where each one lives in terms of where they work. So they work at university, they work at a company. How do I go work with them for them? What do I have to do? If you're an academically minded person, Find a professor, write them an email saying, I've read these three papers. I really like them. Can I work with you? Can I be a research student? Can I go further like that? If they work for a company, similarly write them. Do you have any internships? Is there anything I can do? I've read your three papers. I love it. I want to work in this field. I want to learn. Most people in that position will try to make time for you if they can. Um, But if you've written a list of 10, you'll find a couple of them at least that will uh, say something positive to you. So I think you really have to have that target right that kind of almost like uh, in the ancient greek world that socratean point mm. of view where you go and learn at the feet of the masters kind of the, the great thinkers of your time and uh, and and try and develop yourself yeah and become the apprentice and believe it or not in the world that we live in is making it so much easier and uh, to assess those people and Believe it or not, equally is all those people are actually quite accessible. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we all have LinkedIn profiles and we all get messages. And no, but, but seriously, I, I get loads of different um, requests uh, to, uh, well, to follow is easy, but, but also to connect with from people from India, from Sri Lanka, from Pakistan, researchers, uh, interested academics, uh, all these different kinds of people who are just pushing forward and trying to understand the world. And absolutely, I accept all of them because it's as a human uh, intuition to help people and then to move them forward is absolutely part of our psyche, yeah. 100%. Thank you so much, Michael, for um, sharing all this knowledge in the Analytics Show podcast. So excited. Um, thank you for that. Thanks so much, Jason, for having me. 